Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in? Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley Jay. Improve my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in. To see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. WBZ, you are Jay Talking. We're live midnight to five. If you're listening to me uh, by way of the podcast, well, know that we're live now. And if you're listening live, know that the podcast is available should you not be able to listen to this entire thing. So September 1 is a big day at... Well, it ends summer, and it began World War II, and we're going to talk about the latter for now. Mark Bielski is with us. He's a historian, an author, and director of a historical tour company, and he's the host of a podcast, History, with Mark Bielski. You're a, you're a history guy, huh? Uh, yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Tell me first about the podcast. Uh, it's um, a podcast that I, I devote more to um, uh, it's World War II and Civil War history primarily, but I, I go farther afield. I've had uh, uh, academics talk about Henry VIII, for example, or we talk about uh, recently the Cold War, and I'll even do Revolutionary War, War of 1812. And I like to do, and I've I've even done the Gulf War and, and the Middle East and things like that. So, but I like to do more backstories and, and highlight personalities and people that are involved in making the actual history. How, how long have you been into history? Were you born into history, or did something happen? Uh, it's something that I guess I'm. My, I got into history fairly young. I was my, my dad would take me to. Um, on occasion, Civil War battlefields, and I got interested, and I just started reading as a, as a uh, you know maybe eight or nine years old about it, and just kept doing it. And I, even though in undergraduate I, I didn't major in history, I was an English major in undergraduate and in graduate school, and then I got my doctorate later on in history. But I've just kept up. All my recreational reading has been history or even historical novels. So it's just been. Something that's always fascinated me, and always certainly something to learn from. And you are the boss, I guess, of the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tour Company. Stephen Ambrose was well. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Stephen Ambrose was well. He's called America's premier historian, and he's the founder of your tour company. Uh, yes, he he is the premier historian. I would say because he you talk about somebody who could tell a story and make it available to uh, anyone. Um, he just brought things to life um, 
in terms of I I, I kind of as a director I handle the history side of things so I work with our other historians on itineraries and and just where to go with the tours and how to how to manage the actual narrative that we put out there for our guests uh, whether they be students or um, adults who just want to go travel and learn history um, but Stephen Ambrose certainly he, he has a, a incredible body of work and as I said he starting with his first book and going on to Band of Brothers and D-Day and the Lewis and Clark book on Dawned Courage and, and so on um, and Crazy Horse and Custer he just makes history come alive and makes it available to the average reader and your tours include well there's, there's so many D-Day to the Rhine Band of Brothers tour Iwo Jima Operation Overlord Patton's Footsteps tour Ghost Army of World War II tour, which we had we had a guest on the Ghost Army of World War II. Italian uh, campaign, Sicily to Rome tour, World War II to Poland and Germany tour. And then you do Civil War twos, or tours, Mississippi River campaign, Hallowed Ground, Manassas, Gettysburg, Appomattox. And the thing that caught my eye was the Lewis and Clark tour. Where does the Lewis and Clark tour go? Well, I, I mean, again, it probably goes where they went, but can you tell me a little about it? Yeah, sure. The, uh, the Lewis and Clark tour is interesting. It's, it's probably our least um, military-oriented tour. Um, it, it doesn't do their whole route. Some, you know, and plus, we don't walk it the way they did. Um, we start in Montana, and we make our way through the Rockies. So we do Montana, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. So we do the Rocky Mountain routes that they took to the Pacific. And uh, it's, a, it's an incredible tour. Just if you do nothing but the scenery, it would make it worthwhile. But we study a lot of the uh, Native American, the Indian tribes that they refer to themselves out there that the Lewis and Clark encountered. And, you know, this is the very beginning of the 19th century. So the cultural exchange was quite a bit different than it became later on uh, in the later 19th century, certainly. Um, but we visit... Uh, various places that they stopped uh, the headwaters of the of the Missouri River the great the continental divide um, we go along the Columbia River on the way to the Pacific um, certainly seeing some of the places they stopped and encamped is just a real treat just seeing America at its wildest and it's great to see America still wild out there in a lot of places so the is it by bus and does the bus follow the route the route as close as you can by road and where do people stay? Uh, it, it is it is by bus and there's obviously with an exploratory tour like that there's some walking nothing that'll really that you have to really train um, for but um, it's by bus and then we stay in uh, hotels along the way um, some are lodges and some are three and four star hotels. Very nice accommodation. So it's it's comfort. We do have a offer a pre tour for that, which is canoe and camping for three days. So if you really want to get a feel for for what they did, um, we have a three day pre tour where you can go by canoe, and that again is that's fairly easy. It's not much white water involved in that. Really, is it, and it's all organized, and you guys supply all the stuff. Oh yeah, all you have to do is show up. Wow. Okay. Well, that's pretty intriguing course, to tell bring you. Bring your clothes and toothbrush. So, Mark, what was the event that precipitated the start? Well, for World War II, um, it, it didn't 
as we all know, nothing happens in a vacuum. The event that actually started it was in Gdansk, Poland, or the free city of Danzig, which it was at the time in 1939, um, when a German battleship, the Schleswig-Holstein, which had moored up in the harbor there at, at Danzig, uh, just offshore from where a Polish outpost was, a, a guardhouse at a place called Westerplatte. And they opened fire at 4.45 a.m. on the morning of September 1st. And the it was a World War I, prior to World War I battleship, even some of the some of the large shells that they launched at the guardhouse didn't even explode. They just went right through the walls like a like a uh, like a um, solid shot bullet. Um, that guardhouse held on for a week. Uh, it was just uh, not even 200 men. They held out against air sea attacks, uh, German Marines coming ashore, um, and finally surrendered. Um, the Germans thought they were facing a lot more, but that was the start of the war right there in, at the uh, port of Danzig at the time. It was a free city did, right there after World War One. Did, did Hitler intend that to be the start, or did it just happen to be in the start? Well, he had uh, he had actually started intended the war to start a few days earlier, and then they postponed it to September first. But the Germans had mobilized for a full scale attack on Poland for September one, and they attacked in. Um, they had three armies that uh, that came into Poland. Uh, they had a, a northern invasion that came in from Gdansk and East Prussia because. Uh, if we had a map, I know radio is hard to do, but there was a Polish corridor to the Baltic Sea that had been arranged by the League of Nations after World War One, so they had access to the sea and the seaport. Uh, that was always a, a point of contention with the Germans, especially when Hitler took over in 1933. He considered that an affront, and, it did, and he figured that those Germans that lived in East Prussia, were isolated from the fatherland. So he made that a, a point of contention with the Poles. Um, but they intended to, to attack on the, on the first. Uh, a lot had been done in the build-up to that. Um, the, for many years, um, the Poles had a non-aggression pact, a treaty with the Germans. Uh, that, of course, it was violated. That was signed in the mid-1930s. Um, but at the same time, it, it, earlier in the summer in 1939, Hitler and Stalin, or at least their, their envoys, uh, Joachim von Ribbentrop from Nazi Germany and um, the Foreign Secretary Molotov from the Soviet Union, signed a non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. And then that they agreed to divide Poland once the Germans attacked. So it had been planned for some time, and the German buildup had been going on for years. Uh, they had violated every tenet of the Versailles Treaty, which was negotiated right after World War One. So they weren't supposed to have the, the armaments or the men they had or the uh, Air Force or anything that goes with uh, a buildup for a big invasion. Can you talk about the sort of geopolitical situation at the time? What, if, what events led up to this and— the, the jockeying that maybe the Germans and the various countries involved may have been doing just prior. You you did talk about that a little bit. Is there more? 
Yeah, oh, there's much more, of course. Uh, uh, the Poland was reborn as a nation, a republic, in uh, right after World War One in 1918, and because they had been divided or partitioned for, except for a few incarnations, for over a hundred years. Um, between Prussia, Russia, and Austria, which were imperial powers at the time. And uh, they were reconstituted after World War I, and there was also the nation of Czechoslovakia that was formed. Well, Hitler had his designs on various things. He, the German concept of Lebensraum, which was expansion to the east, into the fertile farmlands of Poland and even farther east into what, was, what became the Soviet Union, because Germany did not have the room to expand as much as they liked. But Hitler started with first the Anschluss, the annexation of the Union with Austria in 1938, with a plebiscite, which many historians of the years have said was not exactly a free election. It was um, pretty much staged. And then he, under the pretense of protecting the Germans who lived in the Sudetenland of western Czechoslovakia, he seized that and eventually was able to send his tanks directly into Prague and take the western part of Czechoslovakia, making Slovakia a, a vassal state of Nazi Germany in guaranteeing the, by uh, guaranteeing their basic sovereignty. Um, so he took over Czechoslovakia first in 1938, and then Poland, he actually had to get involved with the real war in 1939. Uh, in the meantime, the Soviet Union had, not long after the end of World War I, with the idea of bringing the Marxist revolution, spreading it throughout Europe and making it all one uh, communist system, had attacked Poland and was defeated pretty soundly in 1920 in the 1920 war. Um, it was never taught in the Eastern Bloc after, in their school systems after World War II, but um, it was, it's widely known by historians that they were defeated soundly. So they, had, they still had a grudge against the Poles for that defeat then. As Stalin especially, because he had been the political, one of the political um, leaders during that war, and he was part of the command that was soundly defeated. Um, so they agreed to take the eastern half of Poland. Hitler invaded, on the, as we know, on September 1st with the three armies, and Poland wanted to hold out as long as they could. They had a pretty large army. They were nowhere near a match for the Germans with their terms of uh, their mechanized warfare, their air force. Everything was much uh, smaller than what the Germans had thrown at them. They were allied with the French and the British with a treaty that said if one is attacked, the other will come to that country's aid. Well, the French and British both declared war against Germany on September 3rd, so just the third day of the month. Uh, Britain early that morning and France almost reluctantly that afternoon. And But neither one did anything. The French had made uh, a demonstration, I might say, into the Tsarland, the Tsarland in western Germany. They came out from behind the Maginot Line and sent troops into Germany. There were very few German troops in the west. They were all in Poland with the start of the war. 
And Germans, after the war, German commanders said, had the French really done anything, we, would, we, we were at a loss for what to do because we had no defense in the West. Um, but they fired a few shells and then withdrew back into France after a short time. So nothing came of it. The Germans bombed some, uh, dropped some bombs in the port of Wilhelmshaven on the North Sea in Germany, and then they dropped leaflets in uh, uh, some German cities condemning the action in Poland. But that's about all they did. Uh, neither country had the, neither the British nor the French apparently had the had the uh, the were the readiness to go to war to help Poland at, right off the bat, and nor did their politicians have the stomach for it. How was Germany allowed to ramp up their military like that? There must have been some post-World War I agreements, and I suppose you didn't have the, the way to monitor them that you do now, but it, did were they breaking, well, breaking a treaty by doing that? Yeah, they, the Versailles Treaty was very restrictive, um, that, and they broke it in... They they either went around it or or once Hitler took over as chancellor and then as uh, the Fuhrer after 1933 when the Nazis came to power, uh, they were pretty blatant about breaking it. But they would have things such as uh, hunting clubs or gun clubs that were sporting clubs that were basically masquerading. Uh, they were They were military units or what we would call National Guard units masquerading as a sports club, for example. Uh, the uh, the training for pilots, they weren't supposed to have, they were limited to what how many fighter planes they could have, for example, but pilots were training in uh, flying clubs, for example, things like that. So they went around, and then they started to break it blatantly. But in the 30s, the, there was a worldwide depression Germany was hit as hard, maybe harder than anybody uh, by it. And um, some of these countries after World War One, you know, France had lost over a million men. Britain had lost close to a million. Germany had lost maybe 1.4. Some of these countries didn't have the stomach for um, or the psyche to get involved in any sort of aggressive action at that point. So they either turned a blind eye or or just paid it lip service, you know, don't keep doing this or we're going to have to move on you. But Germany basically broke it um, one, one tenet of the Versailles Treaty after another without, uh, with impunity for the most part. Got a couple of minutes before the next break. Can you give me Hitler's grand goal? What, what in the best of all, of all possible Hitler worlds would have been the result of, all, of World War II? Well, he certainly, Hitler certainly wanted to control all of Europe. Uh, he wanted to make Poland a vassal state, an agricultural state, where he kind of wiped out the intellectual, the intelligentsia, and made the uh, general populace just servants of the Nazis. And they could run the farms. They would learn just enough to operate simple equipment and things. Same with the Soviet Union. He, um, they considered their their dogmatic practice of the Nazis that the Slavs were untermentioned or uh, subhuman. Uh, of course, it was a hypocritical thing because all these people knew each other from, um, especially the aristocratic officers, knew each other from riding competitions and, and, and such before the war. Um, but uh, 
and they wanted to expand to the east where there was more room. France would have been more of a vacation spot and an agricultural um, colony for the for the British. Um, Italy was their ally. Uh, every everything in Europe would have been under German control okay. for the most part. Now, what was the strategy? The overall way he was going to achieve this this uh, goal, the, the the big plan. Well, Hitler had uh, I, one thing I, I definitely don't want to leave out, and certainly don't want to downplay the importance of what this was part of his plan was how he was going to take care of the Jewish question, as they would term it back then, uh, in addition to taking over all of Europe and, and making every every country in Europe part of either the greater German Reich or a vassal state, um, the, they enacted the final solution, uh, which really, it, it started before the war, but really swung into full gear after the, they had taken over Poland. Because they put most of the most of the most severe the most severe camps, the death camps and, and labor camps, in Poland on what had been Polish territory once the Germans took over. Of course, they went into the Soviet Union with Einsatzgruppen SS, which went in behind the German army and just were rounding up Jews and killing them at random. So I don't want to forget that part of it. Um, they had toyed with different solutions, but taking care of the Jews is one of them. It's interesting. Hitler was a veteran of World War One, and in the early stages of persecution in, in Germany, uh, he had a, a, a tacit hands-off policy for any, any uh, German uh, citizen, Jewish German citizen, who had, was a veteran of World War One. I. I think that may have gone by the wayside may about, maybe about midway through the World War Two when Hitler had other things on his mind and his henchmen below him could just kind of ignore that, that, um, that hands-off policy. So they were rounding up anybody and everybody. What was the reason that Hitler saw uh, extermination of the Jews as important? Is it political? Was it uh, a means? There might, was it more than one reason? Well, I think, I, I think we have to go beyond history to why, why he would scapegoat them. Germany, the, the actually the largest Polish, the, the largest Jewish population in Europe was in Poland. They had about three million Jews prior to the war, um, and it was because they had invite. They had Poland had been a, kind of a sanctuary country. Not that they had a, uh, an idyllic life in Poland. But compared to what had they had in Spain or when they were thrown out of England or whatever in the Middle Ages, uh, they had been more welcomed in Poland. So a lot ended up settling there. The reason, uh, just I think an, an age-old superstitious hatred of the Jews as maybe refer, as Christ killers or they were blamed for, for selling the Germans out in World War I, which of course was, was totally fallacious. Um, maybe some of the Jews were involved with the uh, were socialists or involved with the Communist Party, which, of course, Hitler hated. Um, and the, anything, they just needed a scapegoat. They were in the throes of a depression. They had to bring the country out, and they had to blame somebody. And the Jews were an easy target. Okay, let's go to Illinois, because Tyrone wants to chime in. How you doing, Tyrone? Uh, I'm doing good, Bradley. How are you doing? Pretty good. 
Well, I've got a question for your guest here. First of all, since I'm calling from Illinois, I had always heard that had Hitler uh, succeeded in Europe and when he would have attacked America, one of the first places he would have hit would have been over here in Illinois in the town of Rockford because Rockford was such a heavy machine tool contributing to the war manufacturer. And he and he knew about Rockford, and that would have been one of the first places he would have hit. Do you know anything about that? I, I don't know specifically about Rockford, but what you bring up an interesting point because I had talked years ago to one or two veterans, one in particular, a gentleman from Connecticut, who was in, had interrogated a, a German prisoner, an SS officer, who knew everything about where this gentleman, this old American soldier was from in Connecticut, which baffled this American soldier. And when he asked the German how he knew so much is because he was supposed to be assigned as one of the administrative officials once Germany took over America. So if Rockford was a target, I, I don't doubt it, because I'm sure they had long-range plans of what they were going to do once they took us over. Of course, Hitler knew nothing about America. He, he was a big fan of American Westerns, and he probably thought that the whole United States was like um, the Wild West, <laughs> easy to take over. Had he ever visited yeah. the steel mills in Pittsburgh at that time or the factories in Detroit or the industry in, in Chicago, not far from you, I think he would have had second thoughts. Now, I always heard that during World War II, the custom was if you're going to attack another country, you attack their munitions plants, their armament plants, you know, anything that contributes to the war effort, you attack if you're going to attack another European town, you don't attack the cities and the general population. Now, Hitler, did he obviously do that? And did London return the favor? Uh, you know, start at the beginning of the war. That's that's another good point you bring up, because the Germans deliberately uh, bombed Polish cities. And they didn't just bomb munitions factories or, or, or industry. They hit waterworks so that they couldn't put out fires. They dropped incendiary bombs so that places would burn. They had fighters strafe comms of refugees deliberately. And there was even, a, I read it years ago, an interview with a bombardier who felt sorry for the um, people that they were dropping bombs on at the beginning of the war. But they would even use red crosses on hospitals as targets, and eventually it became fun. So that kind of thinking became infectious. But that was part of the plan: war on civilians. One of the uh, there was a great remark. I think it was by uh, a British general who was an advisor in Poland, and he wrote quite a bit about it. Uh, Carton de Viart. He had been born in Belgium, so he's part Belgian French. Um, he said that when he saw the German attacks on civilian targets uh, without any any question or any care for um, what they were doing, the, how many innocent civilians they were killing or the damage they were causing, he said the entire face of war changed at that moment. Great, mm-hmm. great comments. Uh, great questions, Tyrone. I hope you'll become a regular caller. Thank you. So this notion... I'm surprised Hitler really had this idea of, of taking over the United States. I mean, isn't that, isn't that nuts? Just not doable oh, yeah. by Germany? And without nuclear uh, well, weapons? 
Yeah, you have to consider the source. Um, if it was impossible, his many you know historians have said over the years that a lot of things he did was nuts. One was uh, get involved in a three or four front war, right? And additionally, uh, attacking the Soviet Union the way he did, um, and some of the goals he set for himself. Had he? You know, I've often in visiting a place like Dachau, which was their model concentration camp in in Germany outside of Munich. They have a map on the on a wall, a huge map that has all the concentration camps and satellite camps in Europe, and it looks as if someone had taken a black paintbrush and just flung it at the map of Europe. There were so many black dots all over, and I always thought that if they had just put that effort and and money and manpower into their war efforts, um, it may have made a big difference. But they were, they were determined to stamp out not only the Jews, but the communists, uh, any people they, they thought were inferior, intellectuals, gypsies, um, uh, antisocial people that they categorized, homosexuals, whatever. Um, everybody was on their list. So it's one thing to conquer their neighboring countries, but then you have to use resources to occupy them, and then to get across an ocean and fight a war is just super crazy. I can't imagine that he would have really. Yeah, I think that was that was long range. And, and by by the time that uh, that they went well after Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, when Hitler declared war on, the, on uh, America afterwards, he was in a position where he had to because we were already helping um, the allies in Europe with with munitions and supplies and such. And he wanted he was in a position where he had to declare war on us. Um, that pretty much sealed his fate, I think, because he just there was too much to deal with. Yeah. Germany had, I think, maybe 12 million men under arms at one point huh. in the war. Do you watch and do you like Man in a High Castle, which is... A- the premise of which, folks, is that Germany and Japan both defeated the United States, and they they co-occupied it with the Japanese on the Pacific side and the Germans on the other side. Did you watch that? Do you think it's ridiculous? Is it enjoyable for you? Or I, I, I'm in the middle on it. You know, I want to like it. Well, I'll have to check that out. I have not seen it. I have heard about it, and it's an interesting premise. Of course, it's. I think it's it's fantasy, um, and I, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm I put too much stock in American power or whatever, but in uh, the Allies from the time. But I, I just don't think it was. It okay. could have ever happened. I mean, think about the the miles, especially the Pacific, that the Japanese would have had to cross, and the supply lines they'd have to keep up just to occupy the western part of the United States. Yeah. Difficult to do. One more break and one more segment. Thank you. If you have the time, it's WBZ. Yeah, sure. We're here to talk. That's why we're here to talk. Now, what do you say? Jay Talking with Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. I know how this sounds, but something told me to turn on the radio. A voice on the radio told you to come here. Radio zombies all night long. WBZ, we're with Triple Great. Guest Mark Bielski, historian, author, and more, talking about the beginning of World War One as it started, I believe, on September one. Were Mark were mistakes made at the end of World War Two that made it likely that there a World War One that made it likely there would be a World War Two? Uh yes, I think they. I think they were. Um, uh, the um, the the terms of the Versailles Treaty were probably a little bit more harsh than than were, could be realistically carried out. I mean, I've read one account that said that uh, the Germans would have been paying more reparations up until 1988 um, if that treaty had been had been enforced fully. Um, and then, of course, the worldwide depression. No one no one really expected that. But the mistakes made, I think, were probably in sometimes creating artificial boundaries in Europe. Um, Poland, for example, uh, not that it was a mistake, but Poland was not the uh, basically homogeneous country that it is now. There were about 69, just under 70% of the country was ethnic Poles. They had uh, a substantial Ukrainian population, a Belarusian population minority, um, about... uh, Oh, maybe eight percent, nine percent of the country were, were Jews, and they were that ranged from ultra orthodox or Hasidic all the way to Jews who were uh, reformed and assimilated into Polish society and business. Um, additionally, they had uh, a German minority, which, of course, as I mentioned earlier, was a point of contention for Hitler, and he used that as a as a reason to start uh, his aggression. Um, but other mistakes were made uh, in terms of um, just the French wanted to punish the Germans, and um, and there was no, the League of Nations never was powerful enough to enforce anything uh, that happened, and it didn't take long for things to come to a boiling point. Again, it was only 20 years later, and we we're about to em- embark on another world war. Another world war. We have Frank in Boston who has joined us for the comment or question. Frank, hello. Say hi to Mark Bielski. Hello, sir. Good evening. Uh, I wanted you, to sir? find out pretty good. Um, 
since the Jewish uh, or the, the the persecution of of, of 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 a lot of people in the in that war, Jews and everybody else, um, Romanians. Um, anyway, if Hitler had allowed all his all the persecuted people to immigrate, and that the other countries had accepted them, would that have bought Hitler time? Would have made a difference. Um, if that's that's one one say the Germans the the Nazis had actually thought about that at one point, there was some thought of putting them at on Madagascar. Now, how they were going to accomplish that, I don't know. Um, then there was at the time it was Palestine; it was under British control. Um, could they resettle um, European Jews in? what was then called Palestine, today Israel, um, that would have, you know, they would have had to get the British to agree with that and plus the local um, inhabitants. Uh, would that have happened? I I, I just, you know, it, I think that final solution, which came about at a conference at Bonze outside of Berlin, uh, I think they, they, really, they felt that was the most expedient way is to either work them to death or just kill them. Um, it sounds very gruesome, but that's, that was their decision. I, I don't think there was ever any way that they, they, a realistic way they could have resettled Jews or gypsies or anybody else. Thanks, Frank. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, I mean, thank you very much, Mark. Can we talk a little bit more about your tours? Sure. I uh, anyone. Okay. Well, this is in general uh, comment overall. I looked at the schedules. And it seems like there's so many. I didn't realize that you had so many. September, for example, you have September 11, a band of brothers going, and then another sept another tour the same day leaving. It's a shorter tour. And then on the next day, you have a band of brothers and another one on that same day. That's like four tours departing in two days. You have that many going out that quickly? Uh, yes. Well, all every tour is led by a professional historian, uh, not just a local guide or just a tour guide. <clears throat> all our historians are either um, PhDs or former military or both, and they're published authors in most cases, and they've been doing it for a long time. So each tour goes out with a historian, and I think we have the best. In fact, I know we have the best historians. Additionally, each tour has a tour manager to handle logistics along the way. So um, they're all well organized and they stay in good hotels. Um, so we can we can send that for, and they're not all in the same place at one time, right? Which which makes it easy. So that you have a big operation. Well, it's it's not that big, but it's uh, we've grown over the years. Do you have a, a Cold War tour? We don't yet, but uh, it's we're thinking about it. We, we may have it to put, have it put together for the year after next for 2021. I would I would like that. Where would it, where would a Cold War tour go? Do you think? Just off the well, top of your head. I, I would I would say we would we would do quite a bit in Germany because the lines of demarcation between the the um, Warsaw Pact countries, uh, the Eastern Bloc, and NATO countries is is in Germany, of course. I and mean, we have Berlin, East and West Germany, and then of course 
the Czech border and, and the countries that uh, were part of the Soviet bloc. We may have some visits into Poland for that. And even um, even uh, France and Britain might be part of the Cold War tour because it's, uh, uh, you know, NATO for, for so many years has been successful in keeping uh, the Soviet nuclear arsenal in check. Um, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't continue. So it's, I think it'd be important to study that aspect of it. But it would be quite a bit in Germany. You didn't mention Russia. Is that too much of a pain dealing with all their red tape, or, or they, or would they just not let you in? Uh, yeah, I think just going through the visa system and the uncertainty of of traveling there, um, and plus you have a lot of distance to cover. If yeah. if you're having a week long tour, right. it, it makes it pretty unwieldy. Yeah. All right. I really appreciate your time. You are an excellent guest. But of course, you knew you would be. Thank you very much, Mark. And in your well, podcast is called A History History with Mark Bielski. That's the podcast. Yes, sir. Thanks well, again. Gladly thank you for having me. Oh, my it. pleasure is ours. Thank you. WBZ. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.